jellyfish rule. They absolutely rule the world in this story. Rolling. Hey, this is Adam. And this is Mendel. And this is Future Ecologies, the show where we explore the shape of our world through ecology, design, and sound. And that was Dr. Lisa Ann Gershwin, who served as our resident expert for season one on all things jellyfish. We had so much great material from her that we also produced a series of mini episodes on different species of jellyfish that we released exclusively to our supporters on Patreon. And today, they've graciously agreed to allow us to release an abridged compilation of these episodes to you, our listeners. So, without further ado, it's time. Your jellyfish overlords. <laughs> So, um, but can I just tell one of my favorite jellyfish impact stories from the Pacific coast? Way back a trillion years ago, when I was, well, trying to find myself. I was a late teenager, you know, just in that sort of like, pondering the meaning of life, you know, in that existential place, you know. And so I somehow managed to join an anti-nuclear protest. Of course, why wouldn't you, you know? And um, so I went to uh, the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant near San Luis Obispo, um, you know, kind of in central California. You're laughing. You know the story. <laughs> As it so happens, I do know parts of this story. It all takes place in September 1981. Plant officials have painted a blue line at the entrance. For police and protesters, it has become the demarcation between free speech and almost certainly another arrest. I, I, I can't remember. I think I was like 18 or something, you know. Um, there I am with, uh, you know, thousands of other people in the largest act of civil disobedience that had ever happened in America to that time. And 1,900 of us got arrested on purpose in peaceful protest, you know, to make a statement. Just inviting join your effort to deny the license to Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. And, you know, it was a good thing to do. I stand by it. I think it was important. We were not able to stop it from powering up and we failed, but we got a lot of attention to the point we were trying to make. And so I think it was good in that respect, but we failed. In uh, the early 90s, I was working with jellyfish completely unrelated to Diablo Canyon, had nothing to do with nuclear power. And anyway, I started volunteering at the Cabrillo Marine Aquarium in San Pedro, Los Angeles. I was a volunteer aquarist, feeding and cleaning and helping out with the jellyfish. And I noticed that one of the species I was working with, the one I was doing the most work with actually, um, didn't seem to be the species that it was supposed to be. Like it looked really different 
You know, its, its features and its structures were different. And I kept thinking, there's something different about this. I don't know why it's supposed to, like it's, it's the same as that in its name, but it doesn't look the same. So see, I was a budding taxonomist and I didn't even know it. But the typical person would look at a moon jelly, Aurelia, and you know, they all look the same, you know. Um, to a taxonomist like me, you go, oh, well, that's different because it's got that, it's got that, it's got that. But, you know, um, birds or worms or things like that, it would be the same. I look at a bird and I go, oh, look, a bird. But somebody who knows birds really well would go, oh, that's a kind of bird. I started doing a little bit of research on the history of the species. And what I found was that the one that I was working with was not the same. It was a different species, but it had been named and classified 175 years earlier as a different species and promptly ignored and ignored ever since. And so in a technical publication, uh, you know, a scientific publication that was peer reviewed, I revalidated the old species, Aurelia labiata, and I gave it its true identity back. So that was good, you know, I was proud of that work and it was an interesting species and I'm still very fond of Aurelia labiata. And it's the common moon jelly all up and down the Pacific coast of North America. You've almost certainly seen this species or one of its relatives before. It's probably even what you think of when you picture a jellyfish in your mind. Moon jellyfish are common in coastal waters throughout the world. This one is specific to the Pacific coast. They have four horseshoe-shaped markings at the apex of the bell. These are actually their gonads, their reproductive organs. So I moved on and eventually I went to Australia and I was living and working in Australia. And one morning in 2008, I opened up the morning paper. There I am with my coffee and my porridge and, you know, I'm sorry, oatmeal. <laughs> and, you know, sorry, a little bit too much Australian there. <laughs> And oh my God, I nearly choked on my coffee. Um, here was this story about Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant sucked in thousands and thousands of Aurelia labiata and it shut down. The, the nuclear plant got shut down for three days because of jellyfish. And it was my baby that shut down my power plant. Well, not my power plant. I mean, PG&E and the people of California own the power plant. But you know, it wasn't just any power plant. It was that power plant. And it wasn't just any jellyfish. It was that jellyfish. And I just thought, what are the odds? You know, the jellyfish were able to accomplish what decades of activists could not accomplish, including me. And yet, my jellyfish, my babies, did my bidding in the most elegant of ways. <laughs> Imagine how proud I am. <laughs> Those are cool, the box jellies. The thing I think that I love so much about the Cubazoans is 
They have eyes. With lenses and retinas and corneas like our eyes. And they see like we see. But they don't have a brain. No, man, it's cool. Yeah, not not cool. Twenty-four eyes. What do you mean, twenty-four eyes? Twenty-four eyes. That's beyond cool. Like they have twenty-four different eyes. Yes. And they're the most venomous animals in the world. Like, wow. So here's what I know about box jellyfish. There are about fifty species. Although, as Lisa demonstrates, there's probably more out there. Uh, And they're box-shaped. So unlike normal jellyfish, they are kind of four-cornered, and you can recognize them that way. And uh, the eyes, of course. (laughs) Those eyes. What what do you know about the eyes, Mendel? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, like, they're box jellyfish. And so in each of the four corners, there's like a set of eyes. There's six eyes on each corner. Four of them are like just light, dark, simple, simple eyes just seeing the shadows. And then two on every corner are these like very human-like eyes with uh, exactly what she said, all the different parts that resolve an image. And there's no brain to tie it all together. Right. So they can always see you no matter what way they're facing. <laughs> 360 degrees. But like... What are they seeing? We'd have to ask a jellyfish. So the box jellyfish, the Australian box jellyfish. The deadly box jellyfish, yeah. right? And the lunchbox jellyfish. and the- Yeah, and the lunchbox jellyfish and the, the moving box jellyfish. and Yeah, <laughs> you dag. <laughs> so yeah, so the Australian box jellyfish or the deadly box jellyfish, Chironex fleckeri is its scientific name. And Chironex is the world's most venomous animal. Um... You know, before I went to Australia, I had heard about it uh, as the two-step jellyfish, because two steps is all you get. And that's pretty true. Um, You know, the average time of death is four minutes. Many, many, many people are stone-cold dead, unresuscitatably dead in two minutes. It's unbelievable. And this is just around the island of New Guinea in northern Australia. Is that um, right? Well, and Thailand and Okinawa and the Caribbean and Africa and China and uh, yeah, no, there are, there are a lot of places. So no, that was wrong. That's not only there, yeah. Well, they are there and they're there and there and there and there and there too. Yeah, there are a lot of places. So we've had box jellyfish fatalities in the Caribbean, but they're few and far between. So like exactly where people like to go on vacation exactly where people like to go on vacation not only that exactly where people on vacation like to go swimming you know they hug the coast in sort of knee-deep waist-deep water and they swim at the bottom looking for fish and they don't mean to sting us they're incredibly shy they really are you know like if you go in the water they'll run from you if they can well run swim you know what i mean um if they can the problem is they've got these long tentacles and they can't control them oh (laughs) i have so much sympathy (laughs) and so they just kind of come along for the ride and and you can't see them right no you can't see them And once you get a brush of tentacle on your ankle or whatever, things go very badly. So, um, you know, it feels like boiling oil. Oh my God. It's so hot and so painful and so instantly hot and painful. What the hell? 
Oh my god. Oh, but is there an antidote? Is there... What can you do in three minutes before you die? Think about your life. <laughs> that you just... You, you, you jerk. You can't help it. It's like, ah, what was that? You know? And when you jerk, it spooks the animal... But they've already injected the stinging cells into you, and their tentacle is now locked to your skin. And when you jerk, it spooks them, and they start to swim away. But they can't swim away because they're um, attached to you. What a mess. So now, as they're trying to swim away, they're swimming circles around you trying to get away. And you're jumping up and down and flailing, and it's like a cobweb where you just get more and more uh, stuck into it as you're flailing, and things go very badly very quickly. Do you have a sense of why they're so venomous? I think it's just one of those funny things, like, you know, like box jellies have been highly venomous since way before humans evolved. So it's definitely not because of humans. Um, it's probably not even because of, you know, fish and sharks and dugongs and whales. Um, I mean, it's overkill. Like, for anything, it's absolutely overkill. So why is it so venomous? I don't know. Why is the peacock's tail so long? Why is the peacock's tail so long? I mean, everybody's trying to get laid. It's a bird joke. <laughs> You're killing it with the puns. Hydromedusae are fairly invisible to most people. They're small, they're inconspicuous, they kind of don't matter. I mean, you know, how most people would see them. I think they matter. The immortal one matters. Of course the immortal one matters. A few years back, some colleagues of mine, bless their hearts, it's an amazing story. They found that this species of jellyfish, uh, Turritopsis dornii, um, from Italy, is the world's first known truly biologically immortal creature. So when, you know, people or birds or dogs or, you know, whatever, when normal things die, um, you know, they um, you know, over time disintegrate and the tissues become, uh, you know, just part of the ecosystem again. You know, the earth recycles nutrients. And um, Turritopsis dornii does something a bit different. So when Turritopsis dornii dies, the jellyfish falls to the bottom and begins to disintegrate. But then instead of actually disintegrating and just, you know, disappearing, the cells re-aggregate into the polyp stage. Like, it's actually mind-blowing. So it doesn't back up like Benjamin Button, 
but what it does, it actually takes on the other half of the life cycle. It begins the life cycle again, but not um, not as a larva. It bypasses the larval stage, and it just goes straight to the hydroid. It, it's, it's the weirdest thing. So the genetics behind this process are still being researched, but it's, it's just an incredible process that it goes through. You know, lots of things live forever through their genes. Like, we live forever through our genes in a way where, you know, we pass along our genes to our offspring, and then they pass along their genes, which are comprised of our genes, to their offspring, and so on. But this is different. This is the individual actually living forever in a different life form. And then once it comes back as a polyp, of course, those bud off baby jellyfish, which then grow up again and do the whole thing all over again. The whole concept of like growing old and dying, it's because the, you know, the genes themselves and, you know, the, the chromosomes and, you know, that they, they go through a process where the genes themselves actually get old. Parts of them truncate off and, you know, things happen in that process. Humanity has maxed out our ability to keep living longer. And it has to do with this, that, um, you know, simply taking better care of our bodies isn't enough because we are programmed to die at a certain age. No matter how healthy we are, our body is programmed to pass. So what kind of environmental pressure or lack thereof would cause an organism to develop regenerative capacity like this? Well, if something doesn't have that process, then it's like a whole different genetic system almost. I mean, as an evolutionary biologist, it's a rivetingly fascinating question. And I don't know the answer, which makes it even more interesting. <laughs> Anytime we don't know the answer, that's when the scientists and Tenny pop up, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, it's, I mean, certainly we've only scratched the surface with this immortality question. We now know of a few other species that are also truly biologically immortal, you know, and, and not even closely related, like different, you know, different classes, like spread across the jellyfish group. Yeah. And th they've actually been able to raise them through numerous generations, like, I don't know, 10 or 20 generations of this so far, and counting like they're not dying yet. So I think probably the only way to kill Turritopsis dornii in, in life, like in nature, would be to eat it. Interesting working hypothesis. I yeah. look forward to the paper. <laughs> well, it's kind of food that keeps being food, you know.
um, ooh, well, ooh, um, you're going to have to pick because, <laughs> you know, I only want to talk about Bazinga. Look, Bazinga is an amazing animal and it's another one of these hiding in plain sight kind of creatures. So um, photos were sent to me by a photographer near Sydney, Australia. He sent me these photos and I went, oh my God, that's amazing. And you know, I carried on like some kind of crazy woman because I just saw this thing that was so very cool. And I asked him, I said, how big was that? And he said, oh, uh, about half an inch. Oh, never mind. So he completely deflated all my enthusiasm because at that size, it's clearly a baby. I mean, you know, the, the group that it's in, the blubbers, the sea blubbers, um, you know, these things get um, a foot across or three feet across or six feet across or you know what I mean? Like these are big animals, you know, so they're not they're not the kind of thing that, you know, a half an inch animal is gonna be full grown. And as a taxonomist, you, you wouldn't do taxonomy on a baby because you don't know if it's gonna grow up to be something that's already known, or you wouldn't know what it's gonna grow up to look like. So you do taxonomy on the adult forms. That's just what you do. Um, and so when he said half an inch, I just went, oh, never mind, you know. And I was pretty sure I knew what it was a baby of, a really common blubber that occurs in the area, Catastylus mosaicus. Um, and so I thought, oh, that must be the baby of Catastylus. Okay, never mind. Not interesting anymore. Well-known species. Bah. You know, I mean, interesting in its own way, but taxonomically not interesting. He deposited the specimens at a museum where I'm an honorary, just... I mean, for no reason other than why wouldn't you? You know, I mean, he had the specimens, so he put them in the museum. And so next time I was at the museum, I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind seeing what a baby catastylus looks like, you know. So I got out the jar and I poured the specimens out into a Petri dish and I couldn't believe what I saw. There was clearly two different species. There was numerous specimens, but two different species in the Petri dish. Some of them were absolutely unmistakably baby catastylus. There was no question, they looked just like their parents. So that was an easy one. This other one, okay, that was pretty different after all. So right away it got my attention. I went, okay, this is interesting, who is this? And I started looking at them under the microscope. You know, I have a dissecting scope that I work with all the time because most of my things are that small or parts of them are that small. Anyway, so I started looking at it and I couldn't believe what I saw within just moments of getting it under the scope. It was clear that this was an adult form. It had mature gonads. Wow, holy cow. So first off, how exciting is this? There's a mature, very, very small blubber. Unbelievable. But then as I was looking at it and I went, oh my God, its features are so strange. It's not like any of the known blubbers, which group into two quite distinct categories. It had some features of the one suborder and some features of the other suborder, and then it had many features of neither suborder, and it had some features that didn't belong in either suborder. So clearly, this was a really, really different animal. 
And I got really excited. What do you do with this thing that's clearly so different from everything else? Well, you get excited, you name it, you classify it, and you call it Bazinga. Because Bazinga got you. Surprise. You know, like here was this new species, new genus, new family, new suborder, right there, hiding in plain sight, fooled even me, masquerading as something normal, and there was nothing normal about it. I mean, how could I not name it Bazinga, right? Bazinga. So its color is a really beautiful golden color, and it gets the color from symbiotic algae in its tissues. Um, they're a type of alga that's similar to the ones that are in corals that give the corals their beautiful colors. Um, and they're called zooxanthellae. They're just strange little algae, symbiotic little things. And so Bazinga has this beautiful golden color because of its symbionts. So it doesn't eat very much. It mostly just gets the carbohydrates that the symbionts give off. So let me get this straight. This jellyfish has algae that live in its jelly that produce most of the food that it needs? Totally. You just need to be near the sunlight. That's all you got to do. So you're just a farmer, basically. As long as you're near the sunlight, your, your symbionts just provide for you. What a life. Symbiotic algae. Cool name. Sadly, I've never heard from Sheldon Cooper. Okay, he doesn't exist. But, <laughs> but you know, I wouldn't mind getting an email from Sheldon Cooper saying, well done, Gershwin. You know. <laughs> I don't. story, but a sad decline nonetheless. Um, Aquaria Victoria. Yep, known from Victoria. <laughs> so it was originally found at Vancouver Island. 
jellyfish. Um, it's uh, quite flat and clear uh, with a lot of um, canals radiating out. So it looks kind of like the spokes of a wheel or something. You know, it's quite uh, beautiful. It has green fluorescent protein in its body that it makes. And this green fluorescent protein, or GFP, as it's often called, uh, became an intriguing thing for medical research many decades ago. And by the way, a few years ago, uh, these scientists who um, discovered green fluorescent protein and turned it into this medical wonder um, got a Nobel Prize for doing this. So the jellyfish was actually sort of the the heart of the Nobel Prize, if you will. And I mean, the, the jellyfish didn't get the Nobel, come on, you know, but, but it is used in heart research. So green fluorescent protein, GFP, is super neat. Are you, are you about to explain a thing? I'm, I'm going to explain a thing right now. Okay, wait. Hold on. <laughs> are we doing the theme? Yeah. Uh, right now? Yeah. Here it comes. Um, okay. Gross. Go on. So, uh, yeah, what's really special, there's lots of organisms out there that glow, that, that fluoresce, but GFP is special. GFP is a single gene that creates this chromophore, this, this little glowing body that under UV light will create green light, visible green light. And the fact that it's coded by one gene makes it incredibly useful for anybody doing any kind of genetic engineering because you can just tag it along. If you have a gene that you're trying to put into another organism, you attach green fluorescent protein to it, and then by shining UV, you can do a quality assurance. You can say, yes, this gene is present because I see the green, or no, it's not because I don't. Of course, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but not that much more complicated, and that's what makes it so useful. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Yeah. So you're saying that in some of these other organisms, like the glowing will be a function of a number of different genes working together. Right, and then you have all that added complication of you have to put this gene here, you have to put this gene here, you have to put that gene there. and Right. Whereas and with this one, you can just take that one gene and insert it because apparently that's easy now. Fairly. Yeah. <laughs> and you're done. Wow. Yeah. So you, you have this gene uh-huh. and you can stick it in an organism that is not Aquaria Victoria mm-hmm. and it will cause it to glow or it will cause the area that it's in to glow. Yeah. Um, Basically, if the gene that it's attached to is also turned on, then it will be turned on, uh, assuming that they're attached to the same promoter. Okay, so it's not necessarily about the glowing. Like, you can actually use this to find out if something else is functioning. Exactly. So if if the associated gene is being expressed, the thing glows. It's a tag. I see. Yeah. And so... uh, That's amazing. Yeah. And it was famously used um, as an art piece, I think, in the early 2000s uh, to create glowing rabbits and cats by just expressing GFP all over the place. Ah, oh, so, that's that's messed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but only I, under I black light. I do not light. want like yeah. glowing rabbits or cats. I think glowing cats would be okay.
also the real utility of this as a tag means that you have this huge range of uses. Like if you're trying to modify cells to, let's say, I don't know, cure a certain kind of disease or, or make sure that a certain other gene that you're putting in has stuck, the GFP will tell you. Exactly. It's it's an incredible tool and it's, it's put a huge amount of pressure on Aquaria Victoria. I mean, they were just taking thousands and thousands of this jellyfish to get the green fluorescent protein. Right up until the point where they figured out how to synthesize it, which has been a big relief for this jellyfish. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we live up here and I've never, I've never seen this jellyfish, mm -hmm. to my knowledge. Um, I, I can see why those researchers got the Nobel Prize for this. Well, it all came from Aquaria Victoria, which was originally discovered in uh, Victoria. But having that much harvesting over such a long period of time has really diminished the population. And to this day, it's fairly scarce. face part of that is, oh my God, there's all these things waiting to be discovered, you know, but it's so true, like there really are. I mean, most of these jellyfish that I've discovered, they're big and obvious and, you know, they're not in faraway places that nobody ever goes. Like one of my favorite stories about hiding in plain sight was my firstborn, Chrysiora Aklios, which by the way is Greek for dark and mysterious god of the sun. How cool is that? Cool. Yeah, I love that one. Anyway, um, Chrysiora Aklios washed up in large numbers at Los Angeles. This is a huge animal, right, to begin with. Like, it's massive. And the fleshy, hangy-down bits, called oral arms, the fleshy, hangy-down bits are about 25 feet long. And the tentacles are even longer. But if you think about the enormity of this animal, the enormity of the message, you know, here's this animal. It's a yard across and eight yards long as this cylinder of sting, because it's very stingy, it's a sea nettle, and it's the color of a fine burgundy wine if you hold it up to the light. That color that you'd see coming through the body, it's that beautiful, beautiful, rich, reddy, purpley, browny color, and it's so exquisitely beautiful. And here's this thing, this 
behemoth of an animal that washed up in huge numbers on Los Angeles Harbor Beach. And how does that happen? How is it that it's a new species that nobody, there's all these universities with marine biology programs, there's all of these people who go beachcombing, all these scientists for, you know, I mean, well, for a long time, you know, decades and decades and decades, people have been around LA and nobody noticed it. How do you not notice a thing that's one meter across and eight meters long? Probably because it isn't there most of the time. It looks like essentially thousands of these washed up on the shore in 1989 and in 1990. And this is when Lisa and other people took notice. So it shows up huge numbers in Los Angeles and then it's not seen again for 20 years. 89 and 90 and then again in 2010. So like the blooms seem to be regulated by temperature, El Nino and La Nina cycles, things like that. And it it looks like tentatively these blooms coincide with red tides, which are essentially dinoflagellate blooms. And those seem to be at least some of the food for, for these jellyfish. Wild. And so, yeah. And then they show up in the 2010s and now there's lots of videos of people swimming with them. Watching videos of these things, it's like they dropped in off the runway in Milan. Like they're all frilly. They've got their long tails on. Yeah, totally. They're like dressed up for the masquerade ball. Yeah, not inconspicuous. Super beautiful. And she's right. It's like burgundy, these burgundy frilly oral arms, which are kind of like the reproductive parts of the animal. Incredible. And now there's tons of videos. <laughs> the age of YouTube. I know, right? And a couple of years after we named and classified it in 1997, so in 1999, a scientist I've never met, um, he's a British fellow, and he made a list of, you know, the the biggest, the smallest, the thisest, the thatest of the 20th century. And Chrysiora acleos was named as the largest invertebrate, or animals without backbones, the largest invertebrate discovered in the 20th century. That's my firstborn. Man, what can you say about tenophores? They're aliens. They really are. Like, if anything has ever actually been introduced from outer space, it's gotta be them. don't actually believe in outer space creatures, okay? But it would be them. They come in 
the weirdest, weirdest shapes you can imagine and even shapes you cannot imagine. Um, they are individuals. They're not colonial. They don't have any polyps. They spend their whole life in the water column. And instead of pulsating to move, you know, like a jellyfish goes, you know, they pulsate, right? Tinafores don't pulsate. They have these rows of cilia and they beat in sort of a tractor motion and they beat rhythmically. So all eight rows beat together and this tractor motion of these cilia is what sort of moves them through the water very silently, not much muscle movement. So there's no ripple effect. You know, jellyfish are like, fwomp, fwomp, fwomp. And so there's all this movement of water and all that. But tinafores just go, through the water. Uh, sound effects mine, obviously, but they just, you know, they're, they're these stealth sort of animals. Every tinafore has an amazing story about, you know, their biology or their ecology or whatever. Like, you know, one of the commonest ones, they look like a marble, just a little gelatinous sphere with two little tentacles that they can fully retract inside the body. The problem is the tentacles come out towards the back of the body and the mouth is at the front of the body. So when you're a solid sphere with the mouth at one end and the tentacles going the other way, how do you navigate that? I mean, seriously, like how do you get the food that you capture on the tentacles to the mouth at the other end? Well, they got that solved. So they start somersaulting. True story, you can see them do this in an aquarium or even if you just see one in the water or you pick it up in a glass and watch it and they'll start somersaulting. And they, in, in doing this, the tentacles drape across the mouth and then the lips just pick it off, the food, they just right off. And then there's this one called Baroe. Oh my God, I'm so in love with Baroe. It looks like a floppy gelatinous pocket, but Baroe has teeth. It does, it's a jellyfish with teeth. And they're actually highly modified large cilia that line the mouth and they use them as teeth and they bite chunks out of other types of tinafores with their teeth. And one of my other favorite tinafores, but honestly, I could go on because every one of the tinafores in some way is my favorite. I just, I'm such a sucker for tinafores. Uh, Cestum and Velamen are two species. They're both belt-shaped. So they're sort of, yeah, like a belt. They're long and skinny, you know what I mean? So like a belt. And you'd think that something shaped like that would travel through the ocean snake-like, you know, like there's a forward end and it would go like snaking through the water, like an eel or something. No, no, no. Velamen and Cestum do not snake through the water. Velamen and Cestum actually, uh, they go through the water like arms forward. So the, the forward part is the, uh, the thin edge and the arms going like snaking along, but the animal doesn't snake forward. The animal snakes sideways and it goes forward uh, with the narrow edge leading and the arms going like that, like a sidewinder, but way cooler, way cooler than a sidewinder. 
And I mean, and you know, and most xenophores are highly bioluminescent, or you know, they make their own biological light. So they flash these blue colors, and you know, flashing and glowing, these fabulous blue colors. And and, and they don't only flash their blue colors in the dark, but in the light, their cilia, the rose that they use for locomotion, they flash off these rainbows of color. I mean, they just oh. Gosh, my heart just beats for Tina Force. I just love them. <laughs> Yeah, so the prediction capability I'm mostly working with at the moment is for what we call irukandjis, which are a type of box jellyfish that have the weirdest, weirdest sting reaction you can imagine. You know, these are highly harmful creatures, and it's not safe for people to be in the water with them. And so it's really about figuring out when and where they're gonna be so that people can be in the water when it's safe and not be in the water when it's not safe. So Irukandji, which is actually a group of about 16 species, are a type of box jellyfish or cubozoan. Uh, we've talked about box jellyfish before uh, with Chironex fleckeri. But These are the ones with eyes. Yeah, so many eyes. But Irukandji are tiny. At adulthood, they are just about a cubic centimeter. That is absurdly small. That's one milliliter. (laughs) And despite this, they are among the most venomous animals in the entire world. Like it's, it's straight out of Hitchcock, honestly. You know, you get a mild sting that half the time you don't even feel. And if you feel it, it's kind of not very much. It's just like, oh, what's that? Oh, never mind. You know, it's no big deal. And then 20 to 30 minutes later, you become violently ill. And I'm not talking vomiting. Yeah, okay, there's the vomiting, but that's not the worst of it. Um, And yeah, okay, you're vomiting a lot, like every minute to two minutes for 12 hours, but that's not the worst of it. Um, You know, the pain is off the scale. Um, To say 10 out of 10 is not accurate because the first wave of pain is 10 out of 10, and then the next wave of pain is more than that, and so you've got a new 10 out of 10. These guys were that. Well, yeah, and then, but the next one is then 12, and then the next one is 13, and you keep getting these waves of pain that redefine 10 out of 10 for 12 to 24 hours. And difficulty breathing, sweating, dehydration, coughing, headache, feels like your head's gonna explode. Um, Oh, and uh, a lot of other stuff too, it's really cool. And um, creepy skin feeling, I think is kind of amazing. And uh, my favorite symptom is a feeling of impending doom. And so you got all these horrible, horrible symptoms going on. And that's a normal, routine, non-lethal case of Irukandji syndrome. Like you think you're gonna die, and then after it really gets going, you hope you're gonna die. What's really terrifying about these jellyfish is that there's no question of being able to avoid them. 
if they're in the water and you're in the water, you're going to get stung. They're a cubic centimeter at adulthood. And so scientists like Lisa are trying to forecast when and where the environmental conditions will be conducive to Irukandji blooms so that they can warn people to not swim at those times. So I've actually developed a model to predict where and when they're going to show up. And it's pretty good. We've now tested it three times. Um, The third time had a bit of a hiccup we didn't see coming. The model got it right, but there was a weird thing going on where nature decoupled a set of anomalous conditions or uh, strange conditions that normally happen together. And so we were currently researching how that happened, how nature decoupled something that normally happens together. Um, I've started a new project now, so I'm still working on the forecasting, um, but I'm also now helping develop an in-water gadget, a new technology that will actually taste the water, basically, in real time and be able to fire off a signal to say, hey, right here, right now, you know, for these Irukandjis. I, I'm very, very proud of the work that I'm doing with the Irukandjis. Um, it's very fulfilling to me to know that I'm helping make the beaches safer. And, and it's more than that. I get a lot of feedback from members of the public, um, you know, mothers and fathers of children, or sometimes the kids themselves, who are aware of these dangers at the beach. And, you know, they they thank me for the work I'm doing. And I mean, I, I'm actually getting a little bit choked up right now just thinking about it. It it never fails to really humble me about doing important work. I mean, I love traveling the world, discovering new species. Come on, what a rush. You know, it's exciting. I love it. But the safety work, to me, I just think that's my life's work. I love writing books. I really do. I, I get a lot of fulfillment there. But no, it's the safety work that really makes me feel like I'm doing something good, you know? exciting to send a net down and you don't know what's going to come up you know you just never know so it's kind of like Christmas morning coming down the stairs looking at the twinkling Christmas tree with that rush of excitement where you feel like "Ooh, I wonder what's under the tree you know and that net coming up out of the water from a trawl it's that same feeling so there's a subset of the true jellyfish, right? Um, There's a subset that's actually a highly derived offshoot of 
the normal jellies that we see with the bell and the tentacles and all that, right? And these things are called siphonophores. And siphonophores are highly strange. So the most visible one would be the Portuguese man-of-war. That's the one that we sort of think of as the classic siphonophore. Siphonophores are actually a colony. So when we look at, you know, a siphonophore, and I'm doing air quotes there, a siphonophore, it's not an individual exactly. It's actually a floating colony. But the colony members are made up of pieces and parts that are clustered together on the siphonophore body, you know, the, the colony body, there's these groups and there's repeating groups. So there's like, you know, a group and then another group that's just like it and another group that's just like it and another group that's just like it. So it'd kind of be like families in a row of houses, right? And each of the groups is composed of um, what we call persons. That's actually what the pieces and parts are called. And so these would be like the family members in the row of houses on a street, right? So there's, you know, the mom and dad and the two kids and the dog, right? So on a siphonophore, you've got the feeding persons, which are, you know, the sort of the mouths. And then, you know, you've got the, uh, you've got the tentacle persons, which are sort of the defense persons. And you've got the, the reproductive persons, which are, you know, the, the ovaries and the testes. Each family along the street has mom, dad, two kids, and a dog. And then the next one has mom, dad, two kids, and a dog. And this one has mom, dad, two kids, and a dog. And the next one has mom, dad, two kids, and a dog. And the next one has mom, dad, two kids, and a dog. And the next one has mom, dad, two kids, and a dog. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like that. So they have these repeated families, if you will, of these persons, if you will. And um, siphonophores tend to be very, very stingy, and they don't tend to look like jellyfish. They just look like nothing you've ever seen. And they usually break apart in a net. So when you see them, you see the pieces and parts fragmented. And they are absolutely the bane of every marine biology student's existence. Because, you know, you're in, uh, you know, the lab and there's a test at the end of the semester, you know, what you've learned, and nobody ever gets the siphonophores. They are murderous little things to try to figure out in a marine biology lab. A dear friend of mine, uh, Chuck Galt, and uh, anybody listening to this who took Galt's class, which is many, many people through the decades, would be laughing right now because they know exactly where this is going. So on Chuck's final every year, he would have a piece of a something that you'd have to guess was a siphonophore because you just, there was no way that it could be anything else. And so the, the rule in marine biology is always, if you don't know what it is, it must be a siphonophore. And so he would have this thing on his practical exam and people would say it's a siphonophore. No, it wasn't. Chuck has an evil sense of humor, like really twisted. That I, I love that in a person. And so Chuck had an extra long epiglottis, you know, the dangly bit at the back of the throat, right? And so he had it trimmed off and he asked the doctor, can I save that? And he would use this, I know. 
Okay, anybody listening, you gotta know, Adam has just lost it, completely lost it. He's bright red. He's kind of flamingo colored, actually. Come with me and that's a spicy meatball. And so, um, you know, so Chuck used his trimmed off epiglottis. <laughs> in a practical exam for marine biology. And, you know, as you can imagine, it stumped the students every year because they always thought it was a siphonophore. But here's the thing. It could have been because that's the thing about siphonophores. They just look like anything else that it couldn't be. It must be a siphonophore. So that's the long-winded explanation of how weird siphonophores are. Um, the Portuguese man-of-war floats at the surface, but most other siphonophores are down deeper. In an area of the open ocean, down kind of in the middle deep, called the mesopelagic, meso meaning middle, pelagic meaning open ocean. So this is the area that's way, way out in the middle of the ocean and way, way down, halfway between the surface and the bottom, you know, just out in the open nothingness. That's where siphonophores rule the world. And they are out there in unbelievable numbers. But some of them are just amazing. So like there's this one called Praia, Praia Dubia, and uh, it grows this incredibly long colony of these repeating bits. These persons, yes, thank you. So it gets about 150 feet long. And when it's uh, feeding time, you know, it'll swim along and then it'll create this curtain of tentacles that become like this curtain of death. And, um, you know, it, pretty much any plankton or any fish that swims that way is going to get caught in this. So, you know, that's pretty amazing. Um, another one of my favorite siphonophores is the long, stingy, stringy thingy, which I think just pretty much says what it looks like and what it does. So. <laughs> And I, I love the long, stingy, stringy thingy. Look, long, stingy, stringy thingy just works. It really just does. Because when you see it, you just go, that's gotta be the long, stingy, stringy thingy, you know. Now, did, did you name it? I did, I did. <laughs> Confession, yes. <laughs>
it's the sort of poster child for a lot of things that have jellyfish. You know, it's on the covers of books and it's the it's one of the mascots for UC Santa Barbara. You know, logos for businesses and t-shirts and you know all that kind of thing. I mean, it's exquisitely charismatically stunningly beautiful um but we're losing it polyorchis is absolutely dreamy graceful fabulous little creature um the body is about um oh, a little bit smaller than an egg you know chicken egg um a bit smaller than that and it's got uh, oh, maybe a hundred or so beautiful, long, graceful tentacles. And at the base of the tentacles, it's got these red spots. They're actually light-sensitive spots. They don't see pictures or anything like that, but they just see light and dark. And then it's inside the bell. It's got this long, graceful, hangy-down bit with a little sort of ruffly thing at the end. And so that's its throat and its mouth. And, um, and then it's got these little dangly sort of thread-like things on the inside around the mouth, sort of this little curtain of these little dangly threads. And those are its reproductive organs. It normally sits on sediments like on the bottom with its little tentacles out looking like, I don't know, some kind of like a virus or something, you know, just sitting there. And its lips uh, kind of move around, combing over the surface, looking for little food items. And, you know, then it finds them and it, you know, uh, brings them up into the throat and into the stomach. And then, oh, I don't know, periodically, like it'll just start pulsing, it'll come up, uh, like it'll come all the way to the top, and then it'll go back down, and it'll spread its tentacles. And this is part of its feeding behavior as well, where it'll spread out this beautiful fan of tentacles and sort of slowly descend, hoping to catch food on the way. Um, it's found, uh, well, down into Baja, California, and up to um, north of Vancouver. So it's really the whole Pacific coast of North America. And once upon a time, it was common as. I mean, it, just unbelievably common. And these days, it's not so common. There's quite a few places it's simply not found anymore. And um, we think... It, it, it probably has something to do with where the polyp is found. It's probably in association with some type of, I don't know, clam or worm or whatever it's probably commensal with. And we don't know what it's commensal with. We've never found the polyp stage ever. I think for most species that we haven't found the polyps, it's because we haven't looked. In this case, boy, have we looked. I've looked, other people have looked, many, many people have looked over many decades and nope, never found it. Yeah, we just have no idea where these things hang out. Um, we've tried to raise them in captivity to get the polyp that way. No, nope. they just don't want to be raised in captivity. So we assume that that's why it's on the decline, but we don't know. All we know is that we're losing polyorchis. And because it's a jellyfish, it'll probably never make the endangered list. You know, nobody will care. Nobody will spend the money to get it put on the endangered list, to get it protected.
also got to talk about the salps. Yeah. Because, I mean, it would be wrong to exclude salps from jellyfish. Many of my colleagues do, but I'm sorry. I'm here to say it's wrong. <laughs> sorry, colleagues. <laughs> the other jellies... You know, the the true jellies, the water jellies, the siphonophores, tenophores, the box jellies, you know, those are all carnivorous. They eat other creatures to survive, other animals. Like they're not vegetarians, you know, they, they eat um, fish eggs or fish larvae or whole fish, maybe prawn eggs or larvae or whole prawns. You know, they, they eat other animals. So salps look like jellyfish but they're actually in our phylum. So they're more closely related to humans than to the other types of jellyfish. And that's actually really weird if you think about that. Like here's these things that, you know, there are these little barrels of jelly with these little muscle bands, you know, but, but in their earliest larval stages, in our earliest larval stages, you can't tell us apart. And then they grow up to look like them, and we grow up to look like us, and we look at them and go, really? Seriously? But imagine what they must think of us. <laughs> and, and despite the fact that they're jellyfish, they actually have a little sort of proto-brain, and they have a heart. You can actually see their heart beating. They're proto-vertebrates, and, uh, and, and they're vegetarians, so they eat phytoplankton or plant plankton. They don't purposely target animal plankton of any kind. Um, they'll sort of take it if they end up with it, but they definitely don't target it. They'll actually filter to select against it. Salps have blooming down pat. Um, some types of salps can bloom so fast, it'll spin your head around. Um, they can grow 10% of their body length per hour and they go through two generations in a day. So a salp that's born at noon one day is a parent at midnight and a grandparent by noon the next day. Like, it's just, it's, it, it's unbelievable. They really just come out of nowhere as these super abundances, and then they disappear just as fast, you know. There's no polyp stage. They're entirely pelagic, meaning they drift or swim their entire life. And so it's interesting because the conditions being right for them is ample food. And ample food for them being phytoplankton is, you know, like we talk about algal blooms, right? That's exactly the food they feed on. And so when you get bursts of the fertilizer in the water, then you get bursts of the phytoplankton that follows and bursts of the salps that follow. Salps have a aggregate stage, which is a colony that's attached together. And then they also have a solitary stage in which each zoid or individual is not attached. And so that's just an alternation of generations. So you get the solitary is the clonal stage. And so they butt off the chain of the babies. And then those are the sexual ones. They start out as male and the older ones become female before they detach. So the oikopleuras, or the group is called appendicularians, uh, or larvations, they're also called, um, and they're these bizarre, bizarre creatures. So they're kind of a larva that's become an adult. They never grow out of the larval stage. And they look like a tadpole. 
or like a little sperm or something. And they make this mucus house that they live in that's many times bigger than them. And the house has these windows and they select for the type, the, the size of food particle that they're looking for, phytoplankton. The house is catching everything else and they're eating what comes through the windows. Appendicularians are as common as flies, like they're just unbelievably common. And they build these little mucus houses and, and they build several a day. And when they ditch the house, it falls to the bottom as what we call marine snow. And it, it's not because it's white or, you know, like it, it's not cold or it's not that, but it just, it gives a blizzard sort of appearance to the water. And, um, and you know, but it's full of nutrients. There's lots of tiny organisms that have been caught in that mucus. And, you know, so other things like fish and whatever will eat that mucus. It's, you know, a good nutrition source. But it falls to the bottom and things there will eat it. Salps, so going back to the salps proper, the barrel-shaped ones, um, they, um, their waste product is these fecal pellets that also fall down. So that's another source of nutrients coming down, but it's also um, a source of um, sequestering carbon, you know, out of the water and sequestering it down into the benthos. Ah, pyrosomes are amazing. So um, pyrosomes are sort of a permanently colonial, weird type of salp. So salps I just explained, um, they've got the aggregate stage and the solitary stage. Pyrosomes don't have that. Pyrosomes are stuck together all the time. And they've got this sort of gelatinous matrix that's um, like a long hollow tube. And um, these zoids or these you know individual salps are stuck in the matrix of this gelatinous tube all around it. And they're stuck in so that um, so the salps are kind of barrel shaped. So the ends of the barrel, the two open sides, one is open to the outside and one's open to the inside. And what they do is they suck water in, all salps suck in lots of water that way. It's how they move and it's how they feed. And so pyrosomes suck in water from the outside and then uh, exhale the water on the inside. And that's how the whole tube moves through the water because all of them are sucking in water and jetting it out. So they have this weird sort of gelatinous, um, uh, like a like a mucus web that they make inside their uh, barrel, and that mucus web catches the food, like the little particles of food, and then they're constantly streaming that mucus web into their mouth with the food on it. Yeah. So as they're sucking in the water so that it brings in the food and then they're jetting out the water to get rid of it and bring in more food. That's the that's how they move through the water. And so pyrosomes, um, the word pyrosome means fire body because they're brilliantly, fantastically bioluminescent. I mean, just 
beautifully. And when you see a pyrosome, you know, and they can get quite big, like the normal pyrosomes that we have, you know, that washed up in your area, you know, they get like a yard long. I mean, they're fantastic. And if you touch one side anywhere, then it'll create this ring of light and it becomes like um, like the um, the rings you know if you drop a pebble into a pool and you know you get these like rings going like that with the vibration right and so they do that where you touch one part and it goes with these rings going like that and then when the rings because it's a tube shaped thing you know the rings go around like that and then when they hit the other rings they come back around like that and then back around like that and then back around like that and it's this incredible display of bioluminescence and there's one type of pyrosome that we find down in the Tasman Sea which is that body of water between southeastern Australia kind of Sydney area and New Zealand so there's this sort of enclosed, I mean, well, it's not enclosed, but it's this sort of semi-enclosed little area, um, you know, bounded by New Zealand over in the east. And this um, species of uh, species of pyrosome lives there that gets really, really big, like so big that you can scuba dive into it. And I've always thought, wouldn't it be amazing at night, because you can't see bioluminescence during the day, but at night, to go into one of these things and just start touching it and you'd be surrounded with these rings of bioluminescence. I think it sounds brilliant, absolutely magical. This compendium of mini-episodes features Dr. Lisa Ann Gershwin, the author of Stung, On Jellyfish Blooms and the Future of the Ocean, and Jellyfish, A Natural History. Find more of her at lisagershwin.com. A whole heap of musicians generously contributed their work to this mini-series. They include Speshpep, Radioactive Bishop, Jonathan Shirk, Cat Kandu, Loam Zoku, Sour Gout, and Sunfish Moonlight. You can find links to their work, as well as show notes, photos of cool jellyfish, and our season one soundtrack on our website, futureecologies.net. There's also a nifty little contact form in case you'd like to get in touch. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters, for whom these episodes were originally produced, and who have generously allowed us to share this abridged version with the rest of you. For early access to the next round of mini-episodes, released in the weeks between our regular episodes, Plus other goodies like stickers and patches, head over to patreon.com slash futureecologies. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and iNaturalist. The handle is always Future Ecologies. And as always, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. We love hearing from you. All right, back to work on season two. You'll be hearing from us again soon. Maybe that's why I include them as jellyfish. <laughs> They're too fascinating it's to exclude. Tent. It's a big tent, it's absolutely. Big tent. Big tent <laughs> I would include flamingos if I could. <laughs> well, there you go. Color. You know, yeah, absolutely. Feeders, colonial. Yeah, what's not to love? <laughs>